Hey everyone and welcome to this. This is Risky Business Live, which is the unstructured, kind of all over the place live stream we have started doing here at Risky.biz and it looks like there's a bit of a lineup uh, kind of forming. We've got Dimitri Alperovich, uh, co-founder of uh, CrowdStrike, who is now... What, what do you do now, Dimitri? What are we, what, what, what's your title? Uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Or International Man of Mystery and Leisure, Dimitri Alperovich. Uh, we have Adam Boileau, of course, who is uh, uh, of Insomnia Security in New Zealand. And uh, Alex Stamos of Stanford University, formerly the Chief Security Officer of both Yahoo and Facebook. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Now, uh, we've got a few topics that we're going to discuss today. Um, we are going to jump into the first one in just a moment, which is a discussion of a fairly major report that um, uh, that Booz Allen Hamilton published on uh, Russian cyber activity. And we've got a fairly diverse uh, collection of views on that one amongst uh, those joining us on the stream today. So that's going to be a great discussion. Um, and then we're going to be talking about a couple of other things, uh, looking at perhaps some shenanigans involving uh, SIGINTA's obtaining uh, uh, medical research relating to COVID-19. How much of a thing do we expect that to be? You know, is that moral? Is it is it justified? Uh, and then, of course, we'll be talking about some of the capacity constraints that uh, Microsoft is hitting on its Azure platform. That's something that Adam and I spoke about on the uh, podcast last week, on the audio podcast, The Regular Risky Business, and that's turning into a bit of an issue. Microsoft is kind of downplaying it and saying, we don't, we haven't had any outages, uh, but like I know people who've had to ring, like telephone Microsoft support in order to get allocations to allow their, you know, their VMs to spin back up, which is not ideal. Um, but first, let's talk about this Booz Allen Hamilton report. Let's just get the Booz Allen Hamilton jokes out of the way. Uh, like, was this something that was actually, a, a, you know, a, a top secret gig prepared for the intelligence community? but someone leaked it or is this marketing? <laughs> uh, what else have we got? They've called it bearing witness and it has a picture of a bear on it. That makes me pretty grisly. I want my world. It's such a bad pun. Uh, yeah. Ew, boo. Yeah. A little bit polar izing. All right, there we go. But the report is called bearing witness. I think Alex, it was your idea to talk about this thing. So why don't you start uh, sure. by telling us telling us what you think of it? Yeah, so to overview of kind of the idea here. So this is a almost 80-page report by Booz Allen Hamilton. Half of the report is footnotes, right? So there's over 500 endnotes in this document, um, which even if you don't agree with any of their conclusions, it is the most... It is the, the best bibliography you could possibly have of things if you wanted to read about the GRU. And the overall idea of this report is that they're it, they're doing a couple of things. One, they're pulling together all of these known GRU operations. GRU, a.k.a. Uh, you know, APT28, a.k.a. Fancy Bear, Sophocy, you know, a variety of other. They talk about the fact that there's a bunch of different actors uh, here with different names from different groups um, who have all been tied to GRU. Um, but they talk about all of their operations, and then they tie them back to the official military doctrine of the Russian Federation. The fact that in 2014, Russia came out with this official public document that said, this is what we care about from a, a national security perspective. These are the reasons why we will do certain things. And the theory here is that if you look at their official military doctrine, and remember, GRU is, is part of the military. They are not a independent agency sitting out somewhere else in uh, you know, under the Kremlin. They are directly under the control of the military generals, that you can tie all of their activity to official Russian doctrine. And so they, they do that through both uh, timelines and then through kind of color coding of what what might have encouraged the GRU to do this specific operation against Finland, this specific operation against Montenegro, this official operation in the United States? Now, one concern that kind of came up when we were all discussing this yesterday is that, you know, these these Russian military objectives, as spelled out in this document, are kind of boilerplate 
military objectives that any country would have, which is like, you know, uh, destabilization in nearby states could cause problems for us. So therefore a military objective is to not allow that to happen or, you know, instability in these states over here is probably good for us. So so it's sort of like there, there, there is a bit of a worry that you could sort of make any activity fit and you could make it look like part of this grand strategy when really it's just, you know, it, it might not necessarily be as grandmaster chessboard as all of that. Dimitri, what do you think about that idea? No, I think that's absolutely right. Now, I, I agree with Alex that this is the first time I think anyone has put together a comprehensive or as comprehensive as one has seen up to this point, summary of all the GRU operations, at least in the last six or seven years. And that's very useful. Uh, you know, even as I was perusing the report, I was like, oh, I forgot they did this or that. Um, it was a great reminder of all the things that they've done um, and the scale and scope of that activity. However, I thought that shoehorning it into the doctrine was not necessarily the best thing to do, primarily because doctrine actually doesn't care that uh, doesn't matter that much. So regardless of country, it's not specific to Russia, but no one in the U.S. military is sitting there before the plan and operation saying, well, gee, what does our doctrine say? And let's make yeah. sure we follow the doctrine, right? No operator ever says that. Doctrine is usually something that will descri describe after the fact um, your strategy and something that has evolved into a strategy over time, but it's not a guidance document for how you do operations. So I thought that the mapping of the different individual things to the doctrine uh, was a little bit far-fetched and uh, not necessarily a great predictor of what the Russians are going to do, in particular because if you look at the history of, of Putin in particular and Russian GRU actions um, uh, even more specifically, um, in general, they're quite opportunistic. There is no sort of grand strategy of this year we're doing this, next year we're doing that. It's we're seeing an opportunity, let's take advantage of it. And frankly, like a lot of countries operate that way as well, including the U.S. Mm. in many cases. So. Uh, well, it's interesting, what, it's interesting what you yeah. say about that that sort of, um, you know, those guiding principles that might, you know, extend out over a number of years, because one thing I want to introduce into this discussion is the contrast between, you know, what we see in this report about GRU and what we see, uh, you know, China doing in terms of saying, you know, these are our key, key industries and areas of scientific interest, and then that's where the breaches start happening, right? And it's like a one-to-one -one mapping. It's almost like they... They come up with a uh, target list. But I, I do, the, you know, the thing that I found most interesting about this report that we're discussing now, the Booz Allen Hamilton report, is it demonstrates just how prolific GRU is. You know, and I mean, it just, there's so many incidents, so many breaches, so many shells, and of course, so many detected incidents, right? Because they don't seem to really care too much about being caught and and having, uh, you know, the, the attribution finger pointed at them. I mean, is that, uh, you know, and Adam, I want to get your thoughts on some of this stuff in a moment, but just Dimitri, what did you, you know, what what, what are your thoughts on that on, on just how prolific they are and how they don't seem to really care that people know uh, what they're doing? Well, they've been prolific for the last six years. I mean, I think it's important to understand that everything changed starting with 2014, right? 2014 was the um, uprising in Kiev, which triggered the invasion of Crimea and then later on Eastern Ukraine and the separatist movements there. And that really changed the Russian strategy where they said, okay, enough with the West. This is not going to be, you know, long-term friendship here. They've been moving in that direction ever since 2007 when Putin gave that famous speech at the Munich Security Conference where he called NATO an enemy. But in 2014, it really crystallized for them that we're on our own. Uh, NATO is the enemy. We, we got to confront them. They're trying to stir trouble in Ukraine, which is, um, you know, on our border and um, a state that Russia traditionally views as a sort of a brotherly nation. Um, and ever since then, all the activities that we've seen from Russia, including in the kinetic space, physical space in terms of um, use of chemical weapons and uh, for assassinations and everything else we've seen them do, really highlights how they just don't care what anyone else thinks of them. And in cyber, um, that, of course, followed as well. So I think um, the operations that preceded 2014 were very different. They weren't as voluminous, and they clearly cared a lot more about being attributed. After 2014, they stopped caring. Yeah, I, Adam, um, I just know that when you and I on the regular, you know, Risky Business Weekly podcast, when we talk about this stuff, um, I always detect this sort of like begrudging respect from you, you know, when you look at their operations and you're like, you know, you look at the blow by blow of some, you know, pretty epic hack they've done and you, you know, you sort of sit there and go, well, you know, you 
<laughs> so that, that old drill tweet, you know, that drill tweet, you do not under any circumstances got to hand it to ISIS. You know, it, it's, it's sort of like reminds me of that because like you kind of got to hand it to him. And I mean, reading, I mean, that was one of the things I got out of reading this paper was just, you know, quite how much they've been up to over the years. I mean, we've talked about so many of those incidents, you know, in the weekly shows, but it's very difficult to build a comprehensive picture. And that's, you know, as you said, Alex, like this is a, such a great document from the point of view of how well it's researched and footnoted. I mean, the, I think I, I do agree with Dimitri in that the, shoehorning the doctrinal aspects into it does feel a little clumsy in places. But I mean, as someone who does what, you know, 60% hacking and 40% writing about hacking and quality assurance, seeing other people's writings about hacking, you know, seeing a document like that, you can appreciate how much work went into that and pulling together all the sources and all the end notes and all the references. And it's a really well edited document, really well put together, good language, you know, very concise for such a complicated and messy subject. And that was for me what it really helped highlight is the relationship between geopolitical thing this, you know, cyber action that, and how they kind of tie together and the full kind of set of things they've had to do. And I I quite liked also the um, amount of focus it put on to the, you know, the preparing the battle space aspect, right? But the fact that they are in places in advance so that when they need them, when they can, when they go to be opportunistic geopolitically, they're not necessarily being opportunistic technically, right? They've already got the, the shells in place, the access, the domain admin, all that kind of thing ready to go. Um, and that is one of the things we end up kind of, you know, handing it to them, right? We've got to give it to them for that, right? Is they do have pretty good operational capability to maintain that many shells in that many places and keep track that's, of it all. Like that's, that's hard work. All right, Adam, Adam um, I'm going to ask you to just uh, turn your mic up just a little bit further there, bud. Uh, sure, and, sure. Uh, you know, I mean, one thing that I've noticed here is that, like, uh, I guess from your point of view, right? I mean, you operate a, uh, you know, medium-sized uh, pen test firm, right? Your job is to get your team to get shells for your clients, right? But when you look at the activities of an organization like this, I mean, they're optimizing pretty hard for the same end result. <laughs> and well, I mean, I mean is yeah. there, you know, is there a part of you that just goes, wow, okay, you know, these, 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 they're good managers. I mean, one of the things that I'm, you know, envious of them in a way is having clear tasking, you know, because we end up with pretty fluffy sets of requirements from 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 our customers sometimes, right? Whereas at least when you've got a you know, doctrinal doc, and maybe not using it as the gospel, right? But when there's clear you know, geopolitical aims, right? This bad thing is happening in Montenegro. We're going to go own up the defense ministry and we're going to steal their NATO emails, right? We now, you know, like it's pretty clear. And that's, as an operator, is really nice, you know, to have a clear mm. set of things we're going to do, have a meeting in the morning, right? You're going to shell that, you're going to shell that, you're going to steal that mail spool. The analyst over there is going to read it for you. So you don't have to read the damn mail spool yourself because no one likes doing that. Um, and yeah, having, you know, the advanced bit of advanced persistent threat, like having all of that tasking and operational support and analysts and linguists and all the things that you need to get the job done like that's i'm envious of that in a way because as a small operation you know we end up doing all of that ourselves we have to read our own mail spills right look at our own screenshots read our own key logs like that's you know that's hard work um so yeah i'm i'm envious of that i suppose adam as someone who has dealt a lot with government bureaucracies i can guarantee you that there's never just one meeting where they decide to be soft. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe we're lucky we get to make our own shells, you know, rather than having to, uh, you know, fill out TPS reports every time we get one. Now, look, uh, this uh, this document from uh, Booz sort of uh, points out, uh, points to various documents, you know, doc doctrine documents that are periodically updated and whatnot and says, ah, oh, you know, it all springs from these. What I find interesting, though, is, you know, if you want to look at sort of the guiding philosophy behind a lot of this Russia stuff, you know, you only need to look at a text published in 1997 by Alexander Dugin, uh, Dugan, Dugin, Dugin, uh, called The uh, Foundations of, uh, of Geopolitics. I presume that uh, Alex and Dimitri, you're familiar with this work yeah yep. yeah i mean so i mean it's one thing to take you know some military doctrine and then sort of do the mappings but essentially this this book which is distributed to a lot of policymakers and, and military policymakers in particular within russia sort of sets the stage for a lot of the stuff we've seen over the last you know 23 years since it was published basically you know uh screw nato um and you know let's weaponize social divisions within the united states to weaken it i mean this is this is something that's been outlined in that text which is a policy text or a, you know uh, uh 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 what is it it's like dogma right that was that was written in the 90s so that is the part that feels a bit weak, is the, is the mappings. Now, contrast that to the CCP, where it talks about areas where it wants China to excel. You know, it's a, it's, I mean, that's the one where 
it's explicit to me in a way, you know, t- trying to tie Russian military doctrine to particular incidents feels a bit clumsy. But when you try to do the same with Chinese, you know, uh, technology and science uh, uh, aspirations and tie that to intrusions, the mapping is like one to one. Is that something that you found, Dimitri? Because I know, you know, you spent a lot of your career looking at Chinese activity. Yeah, I thought that was the weakest part of the report where they said, well, if we map it to the doctrine, we can be predictive and understand where Russia is going to go in the future. I don't think that holds true because the doctrine is so wide that you can literally map anything to it. But with China, absolutely, there's uh, people that are studying China all day long that crave for the five-year plan reports that come out of the uh, Communist Party meetings because they literally provide a blueprint. Here's what yeah, China I mean, if they, say, if they say we're going into vaccine technology, I mean, that's your sales call list for the next two years, right? As you're ringing up those companies going, guess what? You're going to you're gonna have some Chinese operators uh, all up in your stuff. That's, that's right. It's so clear. And they followed this for now 15, 20 years. And it fails without uh, exception. It fails with I think you mean it never fails without exception. I mean, Alex, that's that's probably something you would have observed as well. That's right. I, you know, the interesting thing about China is the the overall goals are very transparent, but the individual tasking is often up to individual operators and the fact that they have a, effectively a domestic market for hacking services on behalf of Chinese industry. But you're right. If if you want to figure out whether you are a legitimate target of a professional Chinese hacker, all you have to do is look at that. And and to me, you know, it's really interesting because it this whole world of kind of criminology, of reading the official output of the Chinese Communist Party, reading military doctrine from thinkers in the Kremlin, reading translations of speeches given at, you know, Russian military academies. That used to be something that people in literally in the building in which I work at Stanford in Sina Hall, that people did because they were Condi Rice or, you know, they're, they're Mike McFall or they're working on arms control. And so understanding kind of Russian military doctrine is really important. Now that kind of skill is something you have to have if you're just any international company. Because if, if you're a pharma company, if you work in aerospace, um, if you're building AI, if you're in oil and gas, you have to now understand what are, what are the geopolitical yeah, what is the the land in which I'm operating on, and who are who are the attackers who are going to be out there? And it's all out there. You just have to have the capability to go find all that information and synthesize it. Um, and that's kind of amazing to me that like we we don't really as a country organize around the fact that all of this information is out there. And so there's a report sitting somewhere in Langley and a similar report somewhere in Fort Meade, all about kind of Chinese targeting, and that does not make it down into these companies, right? Like you are responsible if you're an independent aerospace manufacturer or if you're an independent pharma company to figure it out yourself. And I think this is the weakness of, you know, the the Chinese and the Russians are laying out these roadmaps, but we don't follow them from a societal defensive perspective. Um, and that's a that's a real kind of gap in in pretty much, I think, pretty much all Western countries, but especially in the United States. But that's the free market, man. Survival of the fittest in in the environment that you're in. Woo! Well, um, because it's all about free market these days <laughs> as like, you know, $2 trillion uh, bailout was just signed here. I know it's the same yes, in Australia and New Zealand. It's, it's yeah. amazing watching uh, the political and, uh, you know, economic realignments happening right now. But that's uh, that's probably for a Everyone's a Keynesian uh, in a foxhole, <laughs> yeah. it turns out. And universal basic income. It's yeah. funny, actually, right? I think the government here, you know, their response has been pretty good. The stimulus is huge, but they've spent the last 10 years absolutely giving shit to the Australian Labor Party for doing essentially a smaller version of the same thing right. during the uh, global financial crisis. So that's been that's been pretty interesting. Now, Adam, you know, you're the one uh, out of out of us here who's dealing, uh, I guess, direct with, uh, you know, various traditional, typical enterprises. How many of them are thinking about this state-sponsored stuff from a sort of strategic level in as in, oh, you know, we're a bank, we've got SWIFT terminals, we need to be worried about North Korea, or, you know, we develop this sort of technology that's of interest to the Chinese government, we need to be careful about that threat. Um, You know, is that something that frequently comes up in meetings? Or is it more, you know, the typical thing that most of your customers are just compliance driven? I mean, so that's a that's a difficult one to answer, I suppose. There, there is definitely an increase uh, in the understanding of the threat environment, but I think you know, by and large, you know, in corporate space, like non-government space, um, 
you know, there is a lot of focus on the old way of, of securing networks, right? I mean, of, you know, the attacks were things that both kids did, that viruses are kind of, you know, the thing you have to worry about in network, that firewalls are important, you know, traditional security wisdoms that are fundamentally defending in a vacuum, right? I mean, in terms of real threat. I mean, you know, things like, you know, kids writing worms in the early 2000s and stuff, sure, it had some availability impact, but by and large, most security controls evolve completely in a vacuum with no you know, um, evolutionary pressure to force them to be real. And this kind of state-sponsored stuff or, or stuff where attackers have, you know, actual real tasking, real motivation, be it financial, you know, or be it this kind of geopolitical stuff, you know, that's a thing that most corporates are only really just beginning to get their heads around, right? That hacking is not, you know, autonomous, self-propelled malware with no human involved, right? That, that we have real human operators making real choices. And ransomware is changing this, right? It's one of the great things about yeah. ransomware is because yeah. it's made it, actually real like there's now humans making targeting choices about where the ransomware is going to go and who's going to get shelled and oh my god they're going to ransom us you know on the weekend right not just at random right oh my <laughs> god animals. who would thought the hackers would do it when you're not there like so rude and so that kind of level of you know starting to realize what the what the advance in APT is, right? That it's not technical, that it's the fact these people actually want something, like they're here for a reason. That's new to people, I think. And well, this I, mean, I mean, you remember, really right, 20, 20 years ago, the line was, why would anyone want to hack us? That was always and, the line. And ransomware has completely blown that uh, out of the water because, you know, they will hack you so that you will pay them to unhack you, <laughs> basically, the, right? The, you know, so, who would ever do that to us line? I last heard that yeah. this morning from a customer. Wow. So, you know, it, it, it's a pretty, yeah, there's still quite a long way to go. And this paper, I think, because, you know, despite the kind of clumsiness of the military aspects, right, and the sort of wonkiness of it, I suppose, right, I mean, it's, it's clearly written by wonks who want to wonk. Um, but, you know, I still think it's a really good thing for, you know, people who are in charge of, of risk management for organizations that would realistically be targets for this kind of, you know, that are geopolitically relevant, you know, banks and airlines and, um, you know, pharma obviously is a big thing at the moment. Um, you know, this is a thing that they should read so that they are confronted with the fact that adversaries are real, right? And are not just, mm. you know... When they're you know, human, they're not security, like a, they're, they're, you know, the threat of who, the... They're not like a, th a natural threat like an earthquake or a tsunami. I mean, you can't, you know, use that same sort of modelling because there is some sort of theory, uh, you know, uh, wants uh, uh, sort of driving uh, these actors. Now, look, you just mentioned, oh, well, obviously, you know, pharma will be a target. A couple of weeks ago, I sent a tweet saying uh, something along the lines of, I wonder how many SIGINT operators have been tasked with um, uh, with stealing scientific research on, on COVID-19, right? Because you can imagine that particularly pariah states that might not have good sharing arrangements with um, other other nations, uh, particularly the paranoid ones, are probably going to go out and see, you know, what's what's the World Health Organization and the West keeping from us, you know, because they want us all to die, that sort of thing. I mean, that's to, that's to be expected. But I wonder if the, you know, if epidemiologists, computers are basically nonstop shell carnivals at the moment because you would imagine that any any nation that is the first to recover uh, or the first to, say, discover that something of limited resource is going to be useful in this crisis, they're going to want to go and secure the supplies of that drug that turns out to be useful before any other nation does because, frankly, that's their job is to look after their populations first and then be a responsible uh, global citizen second. You know, is that too much of a cynical view? We, we've seen already um, one attack uh, directed at the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization, of course, is running a global drug study called the Solidarity uh, Study. We saw an attacker go after the WHO. I'm not sure exactly what they were after there. This was attributed to a South Korea-linked group called Dark Hotel, but we are led to believe that that attribution, maybe we shouldn't have too much confidence in that. So I guess my question for everyone here, uh, first of all, Dimitri, and we'll work around uh, uh, clockwise, so we'll go with Dimitri, Alex, and then Adam. Do you think I'm being a little bit too cynical when I say that there are probably, uh, you know, SIGINT operators in otherwise responsible international law-abiding countries that are that are going after uh, raw research and raw information on COVID-19. Dimitri, let's start with you. Not at all. And I mean, frankly, they would be uh, absolutely derelict of duty if they weren't doing this. Right now, you have a disaster on an unimaginable scale affecting nearly every country in the world and um, presents an existential threat to their economy. So 
the one thing that intelligence agencies are, are supposed to do is to help policymakers figure out how to get up crises like these. Um, so uh, drug studies, yes, I think that is a little bit less of an interesting thing because most of these studies are now being pre-published uh, pre and the information sharing is very robust across countries, across... Well, and also the pharmaceutical companies have nothing to gain by concealing the results of those studies, right? Like they want them out there as soon as possible. Exactly. And... Um, uh, where I think you, ha you have a lot of significant efforts on right now is, well, what is the manufacturing plant? Who is going to hold um, all the masks and uh, hoard them for their own populations as opposed to sharing them or the PPE equipment and everything else? So that, I think, is going to be very, very interesting to lots of intel agencies, both Western ones and, and uh, those on the other side. And also, uh, when you start thinking about... Um, can we trust the Chinese death rates, for example? Did they really get this under control? I imagine a lot of Western intelligence agencies paying very, very close attention to that right now. Yeah, yeah, that might make for some interesting reading in the um, daily briefs, right? Um, Alex, what do you think of all of this? Uh, yeah, I agree. If, if you're a decision maker anywhere on the planet, you're asking your intelligence agencies to help you get a, a grip of what's going on right now um, and to understand you know, the, the ground truth, like Dimitri said, you can't really trust that everybody's being completely honest. And so reading the email of, of health officials in some of these countries could really help you with your response, knowing what is going to be the next, you know, possible fad. I mean, a lot of stuff's going on in preprint, but before it's in preprint, it's sitting as a Word document or a LaTeX document on somebody's desk. And, um, you know, a lot of the security around health information has always been HIPAA-focused around personal information. Um, as somebody who works in a research institution, the amount of security that goes into these systems that are used for kind of the research side that doesn't actually touch user da uh, patient data is not that great. Um, and so you're, it is a pretty green field for most SIGINT agencies, and I think they'd be gathering a bunch of that. On the pharma side, it will be interesting to see because I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here. I mean, there's a bunch of different kinds of uh, possible solutions and, you know, um, uh, responses to a crisis like this. It'll be interesting to see how kind of the intellectual property issues work out about any yeah. kinds of treatment for COVID. Um, because in a normal case, I would see a possibility of, you know, if you're a Chinese pharma, pharma company or an Indian pharma or maybe South Korea and you're hiring Dark Hotel, then you're, you're hiring local hackers to get you ahead of the curve because you're reading internal email for Roche or for Pfizer but I'm not sure that gets you much in this situation because there will be extreme pressure for whoever comes up with the, the first good solution for it to become, you know, uh, you know, pretty much under, you know, uh, reasonable uh, IP terms immediately, and there will be a mechanism by which the inventors will get reimbursed by governments and the such. But yeah. we're not going to live in a situation where the first country that has a pill, uh, the first company is going to have some monopoly and the rest of the world's just going to sit on it. Um, no, I mean, that's it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting, right? Like, everyone's a socialist now. <laughs> right, and so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how, how, that, how that shakes out, but I think that changes the normal kind of pharmaceutical in which if you're a Chinese pharma company and you beat your American competitors to a patent by three months because you've been looking at their internal data, that can be a humongous deal for the international patents, even if they can prove that you maybe you stole some of it. Um, whereas in this case, I, I'm not sure that's going to be true for coronavirus. Yeah. In fact, in WTO, there's an exception to crises like these. So mm -hmm. the patents can be thrown out by individual countries and they can produce the, the medicine on their own. Right. And I mean, nobody's so going to like enforce an American patent or a Swiss patent yeah. on a coronavirus. They could be like, okay, I'll see you in the WTO in 12 years. Uh, to complain sure, about that, sure. but, but I mean, you for look right at, now, you look yeah, at a, you look at a, a drug at the, that's being trialed at the moment, like remdesivir, which is by the you know the, right. the U.S. pharmaceutical oh, yeah. company um, Gilead, right? And they're, they're, look, sure, there's um, intellectual properties to work out right now. But if I'm China, man, I want to know how to make that stuff now before the intellectual property stuff becomes a conversation. But, but it's actually not secret because you have to disclose all the formulas when you apply okay. for regulated yeah. approval, so they know that. But it, you're, yeah. you're right. You might have a situation in which if you think there's an antiviral coming down, that all of a sudden it turns out the Chinese factories to make the generic, um, they're doing so within four or five days of the announcement. And not funny, yeah, when 60. someone rings them up and says, oh, we're wondering how quickly you yeah. can tool up to make this stuff. It's like, we can do it already. Just right. And, you know what? Order. <laughs> Look, if you're, the, and if you're the People's Republic and you have the possibility of saving millions of your own citizens' lives by having a drug 
then I, I, that seems like ethical use of I mean, it, it sucks to be the security guy at Gilead, right? But um, it's hard to argue <laughs> that that's not like the legitimate, that's not like a legitimate use of you heard offensive it here first, Former Facebook <laughs> chief security officer and Stanford University's Alex Damos advocating for uh, hostile foreign intelligence I'm not, services. To I'm not advocating. I'm just saying the... <laughs> I'm saying the ethical and moral framework here is pretty complicated, right? Like so when you it, when you talk no, about these it, mass casualty events, it gets really hard to kind of apply our traditional ethical framework of totally, what is, totally, what is totally. allowed. I'm not, I am not trying to verbal you there at all because I'm absolutely on <laughs> no, the same you, page. And I was <laughs> <laughs> damn you, media, you anti-tech yeah, media, yeah. trying to take my quotes out of context. I saw <laughs> you trying to do usual, it live that's right your there. Usual, uh, <laughs> your usual thing, right? Um, yeah. But you know, and let's see, let's see if some enterprising journalist is uh, take going to take this out of context. Uh, I, I'm no. sure our dozen of listeners. Uh, one of them's a journalist. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so I, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, Adam, because you know, you and I, you know, we don't come from a from an international relations background or whatever. <laughs> This is one of those topics that, as I say, I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks. And when I initially think about it, I'm like, should this be a part of the competition between states, right? And you think, no, it shouldn't be. But then you think about it from the perspective of, do I want my government using every single edge that it has, every single edge that it has uh, to go forward and find some sort of solution here? And the answer is, of course, I do. But, you know, I know that you're someone who is a deep thinker on stuff like this. And I, I wanted to hear your perspective. Does this make you feel icky, conflicted? I mean, you know, what do you think of all of this? Well, I think, that, you know, you're right. Neither of us are, you know, geopolitical international relations grads. Um, so, you know, we come at it from a from a filthy casual kind of perspective. But, uh, you know, norms in international relations are, you know, easy when the situations are gentle, right? And when it's a hard life, you know, it's a hard time like this, then things start to get pretty real. And I, and I you know, tying it back to the, the conversation about Russia, um, and the the doctrinal norms, the doctrine that they they talk about in the, in the paper, I was struck by the extent to which you know I found myself agreeing with some of the fundamental principles that Russia is trying to you know that lays out in its doctrine, right? I mean, for example, respect for the United Nations as a as a uh, organization, right? The idea that the states shouldn't unilaterally go around you know altering other nations' borders and you know respect for the Security Council, right? Things that New Zealand politically has been you know perhaps more aligned with the Russian worldview than the American in that regard and you know coming from principles that seem sensible and good right that we shouldn't steal intellectual property from other countries that we you know we should respect each other those principles can you know kind of still lead to things that are really horrible on the ground right breaking into pharma companies and getting that that edge but on the other hand are also important kind of concepts for protecting you know for what a government is for right to, to represent the interests of its citizens and I you know I'm kind of struck by that you know agreeing with the the ethical framework and then disagreeing with the actions that logically follow from that um, which is you know much like you know a lot of, of hacking right I mean we we have technical skills that can be used for all sorts of things and we have to make that deal with you know whether we you know use those for good or for evil or whether we are willing to let our hacking tools be used by you know other organizations for things we don't agree with and all that kind of yeah the tie-up between what's technically feasible and why we're doing it um and yeah i guess i was struck by the by the the sort of symmetry in a way between you know the russian situation of protecting russian interests um and you know the conversation we're having now about about you know hack and pharma it's funny, I, I, so I just want to call out a comment we just got on our YouTube stream, which is actually from Catalin Kimpanu, saying, <laughs> Dan, you Catalin. media. Uh, hi, Catalin, how are you going? Uh, Catalin, of course, uh, one of the most prolific InfoSec journalists over there at ZDNet. Uh, great to have you on the stream. Um, where are we at? 33 minutes. I think we might want to talk about our last topic for the day, right? And that is the problems that Microsoft Azure is having. I mean, of course, if you read the blog posts from Microsoft, there are no problems. Everything's absolutely fine. But you talk to some of their users. I mean, I spoke to someone uh, well, you know, I was like, I spoke to someone, spoke to someone sort of thing, but someone I trust who's like, yeah, one of their, their buddies had to actually ring Microsoft support to get their instances to spring back up. And okay, Microsoft can say that's not an outage, but it, but it kind of is. Uh, so they are having capacity constraints. This, you know, virtual desktops are up something like 300%. Adam, you and I spoke about this last week on the, uh, on the audio, uh, show, I mean, this really is going to be an instance where the easiest way to get some cloud infrastructure, particularly desktop infrastructure, uh, spun up is going to go is going to be to go with Azure, which 
you know, ironically enough, because they've made such a good product there, everyone's embracing it. Alex, let me ask you, uh, first up, where do you think this is going to go? Because everyone's supply chain is is constrained. Uh, you know, is Microsoft going to be able to keep up here and bring things under control? You'd hope so, but because they're a big company, a lot of resources. But I mean, that's the thing. It's such an uncertain situation right now. Could we see the, uh, you know, the unpopular one, GCP, actually start to take off now because Microsoft is having issues here? How's this going to play? So just to back you up, I've actually experienced this directly. Um, I don't do as much consulting as Adam, but uh, I spend a little bit of time on the side doing consulting. I've been working with a company that's trying to build a, a really secure infrastructure kind of in the modern Microsoft way. Uh, and uh, they're having huge trouble trying to get their stuff up. And Azure, people aren't calling them back. Um, things are not working. I, I built my own O365 because I just wanted to play with a bunch of the settings around Azure AD. Um, and I was getting 502s on doing basic, basic things on Azure AD. And that's bad right like if you That's can't the, get on, in on, and because we're doing video i can do the yikes emoji <laughs> yeah exactly perfect there it is. perfect that's <laughs> right, cool. exactly Continue. right um yeah and so that's bad right like if you're an enterprise and you're getting a 502 when you right click on a user to try to you know reset their mfa or something that is operationally a disaster for you so um microsoft is definitely hurting you're right there's just a global supply chain constraint um the interesting thing is we haven't seen there have been a couple of these in the past and you'll see spot prices go up on certain things like dram or hard drives or the like remember when there was the you know the flood I believe in Thailand and there was a huge spike in hard drive prices uh, because it turns out that all the hard drives in the world came from like three buildings in Thailand. Um, I, yeah, I've had this, I've got this vague recollection sort of rattling around in my brain. There's a bell ringing about some, so the words RAM crisis. Are coming right, RAM crisis, I, I yeah. Yeah. Right, we've had we've had global supply chain problems with GPUs uh, when all the Bitcoin kids, uh, you know, wanted to make Dogecoin and so you couldn't get a GPU to save your life for like actual legitimate uses. Um, and so I haven't seen those kinds of spot prices go up yet. But the, the thing is for like a Microsoft, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, all of them use custom hardware that comes out of Taiwanese OEMs uh, that is built just for the data center. They can't just go buy off the supply chain of HP or Dell or something, right? They're getting that stuff from Quanta and a couple of other OEMs uh, who specially make the hardware so they can be managed at multi-million machine scale. And that is usually physically designed in a special way to fit their special cooling. All of those companies actually have different ways of doing cooling. And that is one of the key key kind of competitive advantages you get um, as a, a gigascale cloud provider. Uh, and so if, you know, Taiwan has handled it pretty well so far. If we see a real supply chain crisis in Taiwan or a reburst in um, China and China starts clacking, you know, down again, um, you know, a lot of the PCBs and stuff first come from the PRC and then they go to Taiwan and then are assembled and then are shipped to the United States, then we could see a real crisis for these folks. For now, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, uh, I haven't seen any graphs of spot prices for, um, you know, the kind of not on demand, but for the, uh, you know, for all of these platforms, you can say, I'm going to run at this price. That's where they're obviously going to start. I think for the most part, it's probably operational and not actually like a hardware issue. It's more about doing something like doubling or tripling the number of machines upon which a specific uh, platform as a service or software as a service offering like Azure AD is operating yeah, so they on. Can, they, is, they should is very be able hard. to. So they should be able to reconfigure to handle the scale. I think is what you're getting at there. Right, but it's just it's just tough. It's tough to do it at the speed at which you're doing it. Um, and yeah. and then the other problem they're just going to have is there's not going to be enough kind of support people to support all of that work. Right. Uh, well, I mean, you know, you 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 had the experience there. I mean, it was a security role, not a capacity planning role, but I, you yeah. know, you would have had some some exposure. I mean, I, I'd imagine that the data center and you know environment in somewhere like Facebook. I mean, it's mostly Facebook is going to have essentially its own cloud, right? So yeah. you would be familiar with those types of environments and that would be a similar sort of thing. I mean, this would be like the number of Facebook users like doubling in a week, right? And that would yes. have that would have and, presented and Facebook challenges. would run into these crises a lot of it would be also like the the timeline on building a data center is two or three years right like mm. to get the land to get the approvals to get the tax breaks that's like a big well, thing and the power they, right even the electricity the power the cooling right you have to be in a place where generally you can get if it's if it's you know everybody builds in Oregon because it's never over like 80 degrees in the Willamette Valley um, and so you can do natural air cooling but if you're building somewhere else you're going to need to get probably a significant amount of water uh, for as part of your cooling so that's all super hard you got to uh, do all that work. And so building the actual capacity. And actually, at Facebook, it was interesting because um, we would burst our capability into AWS for non-user data, right? And so like user data had to be within physical data 
Facebook data centers, but for other corporate purposes or calculations or taking non-sensitive stuff and doing GPU work at it, that could be done at AWS. And so you will see companies like Facebook run out of inside capacity and then shift non-critical workloads on the outside, which now is going to get really expensive. Well, and and this is the thing, right? I remember years ago, I had a, I had a great conversation with Dan Gear about something similar, which was what happens if one of these cloud providers has a major incident and just sort of disappears. You know, his argument then years ago was that the other two would not be able to absorb, not only would the other two not be able to absorb the influx of the refugees coming from this sunk cloud provider, but we don't even have the network capacity that it would allow us to transfer that amount of data quickly into, into these other providers, right? Yeah, so, that's right. I mean, essentially what we're seeing now is the mm. transference of a whole bunch of internal compute into cloud environments, and we are going to have capacity constraints. Now, that means some organizations are going to have to do less with more, but ultimately, look, first up, Microsoft is going to have, have to find a way uh, out of this, and the only way that I can think of is going to be a price hike. Uh, when are we going to see that? Have we seen that, Alex? I haven't seen price hikes. Like I said, I, I, sorry, I should have prepared for this. It would be interesting to see where the kind of... Um, the bidding process prices are yeah. for some of these folks. But again, I, I'm not sure it's like just a straight up CPU memory hardware issue as much as if you're doing a software as a service, you only have so many nodes that have been provisioned for you. Um, and it's going to take, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to magically push a button and, and, and do an automatic deployment onto another 10, 20, 30,000 machines. And that's what you're talking about here. You're talking about services that already run on 50, 60,000 machines that now have to double to 100,000. That's a significant operational lift. Um, and, but that's probably at the scale, you know, there are services Facebook that run on that scale, backend services, a couple hundred thousand machines. Mm. Um, and so like, that's not easy, even if you're running already in a cloud environment. Sorry, Dimitri, I was just going to ask you, what are, have you heard anything about this uh, directly? Because obviously, you know, uh, you're, you're no longer with CrowdStrike, but I'd imagine that you still talk to people there. So you might uh, have some yeah. Have some, yeah, I haven't heard anything specifically on this issue, but I can tell you in prior lives, when we needed to expand significantly in particular locations with some of these big cloud providers, they literally demanded that we would give them a month or two notice before doing so because they just didn't have the hardware provision. They didn't have the space sometimes in these data centers. So you still are limited by the realities of physics. And uh, it's not easy to ramp that up even for these big cloud providers because they don't necessarily want to run uh, services that are under provision massively because that's a margin hit on your business. So you want to make sure you're optimized as, as much as possible to maximum utilization. And that doesn't necessarily allow for these huge spikes to go unnoticed. Mm. It is funny. I think I mentioned that uh, last week as well, but that, you know, the the bumper sticker that we've spent years hanging shit on, which is there is no cloud, it's just someone else's computer, doesn't look so stupid right now. Uh, Adam, you, what are you seeing in New Zealand? Because obviously you're going to see a lot of your clients trying to spin up work from home and cloud's going to be a big part of that. It just has to be. Um, you know, what, what, what are you seeing there? Uh, so, I mean, anything, anything? The same thing that we're seeing all around the world, right? Everyone's shoving stuff up into the cloud willy-nilly, lots of moving to remote working, remote meetings, video conferencing, like we are right here. Um, mm. The concern we in, in New Zealand that we have is that there are no major cloud-provided data centers in New Zealand. You know, if we want to have our stuff within our borders, not reliant on the, you know, three bits of soggy fiber that go, you know, across the sea out of here, then we're pretty limited to what our options are here. Like, there's no Microsoft data center, there's no Amazon, you know, we've got some... Uh, um, you know, some Akamai cache for our Netflix, but that's about it, right? I mean, if the cable goes down, we're pretty screwed. Um, and so that kind of sovereignty aspect for us, just from an availability perspective, is pretty important, right? And if you were in the middle of moving, I don't know, your entire government, you know, our um, our opposition that's currently, you know, kind of providing oversight for our government when our parliament's closed, they're doing so via the Zoom meetings right now. Like they're live streaming them uh, so the populace can see the, you know, function of the democratic process. But they're doing that on Zoom, you know, out of some pop in Australia, right? And, you know, who knows how, is that like, is that any way to run a democracy on somebody else's commercial video hosting service in, in Sydney? I don't know that it is. Um, so that's. Hey, the, if it's good enough for my two year old daughter's music class, it's good enough for your opposition, pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I never really I thought mean, of I, that, but like New Zealand's one dragged anchor away from the 1960s, right? Well, three dragged anchors away. Three dragged anchors. Yeah, we, we, built a, you know, we built another cable, but yeah, I mean, I mean one of those cables has a, you know a ring pair, so you have to put two anchors through it. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they both go to Hawaii, so that the NSA can tap it, I guess. But um, I wonder if you yeah. know what, what happens. I'm sure we're sharing that back. 
what happens if Australia decides to nationalise the local data centres and kick you guys off? <laughs> well, that's a, you know, if we start, you know, we keep pushing you about, you know, giving the doll to New Zealanders and Australia, then maybe we will get, get the boot. I, I saw it like I mean, I, I, yeah, I spoke to a friend who is uh, actually a Kiwi who has lived in Australia for about 10 years, worked and paid taxes here for all of that time, now not getting any assistance from the government. Believe me, it's not just Kiwis who are annoyed about that. We think it's ridiculous and there is, uh, you know, there is movement for change on that. Uh, hopefully we will um, uh, see something on that. But yeah, look, Zoom has impressed me, to be honest. The fact that it is even working is amazing. It's, like, it's amazing, And I, yeah. I don't get like the thing that kind of breaks my brain is why people aren't using Google Meet or Skype or any of these other platforms, WhatsApp, video, FaceTime. There's people sending me Zoom invites who I've communicated with on WhatsApp. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Just hit the little video button on your on your on your WhatsApp. It's the you know, it's it's like Zoom has become this um this icon through this. Well, whole thing. so they it's have strange. really good product management, right? So like their product can use you can use it for small meetings, but also webcasts, right? So they have yeah. features for both. Um, that's all they do. So they they focus on the product management so much. This is the problem with both Microsoft Teams and Google Meet is they're obviously made by companies that have captured G Suite and those 365 customers. So they've kind of half-assed it where Zoom has to be the best and they're self-service. And that's like the key thing that I think people miss is that you can just go throw down a credit card and create Zoom bridges, which is a big deal. A bunch of these other ones, you know, WebEx and the like, you've got to have a relationship with an enterprise sales guy. Um, and so that combination of like having the best product management and then having a self-sign-on, um, you know, that somebody can go through the entire process without talking to a human is incredibly powerful. It just yeah. works. It and it's works. amazing it's up. I mean, I like I, I really want to see a talk at Usenix or something uh, by the, the Zoom by the infrastructure Zoom. team of yeah. how the hell they've done this. Because I just yeah. like I've, I've seen from the inside of Yahoo and Facebook, carrying live video, low latency with high quality of, uh, of service is spectacularly hard. It is really, really, really hard. Um, and so the fact that they're doing it and uh, like I'm, I'm on these Zooms and it's upgrading to 1080p randomly. I'm like, what the how the hell is that working, right? Like, yeah. that is amazing considering that now, literally at 9 a.m. this morning, we had four different Zoom calls coming out of this house for, you know, uh, my wife and two kids were on at the exact same time. Uh, it's kind of incredible. I, I really want to hear from them how that's happening. I want to hear yeah, about my, how my two year old, My two-year-old daughter... My two-year-old daughter, her, she has a, a weekly music class, which obviously she's not going to anymore, and the, yes. and the teacher has stood that up, and it worked. It did drop, and then they had to reconnect, but it came back, and you just sort of think, how? You know, when when all of the normies, all of a sudden, when Zoom has gone from being a business meeting service to being a consumer service that's got to be ramping up to like – you know, I mean, obviously not WhatsApp levels because that's billions of people. I can't find the right, you know, maybe to Skype levels, uh, if that makes sense. I mean, that's uh, that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, maybe what, they're running it on Azure and that's where all the Azure capacity is gone. Maybe that's it, it. it's their fault. It's a good question. It's like, I don't know, have you guys, have any of you guys dumped your NetStat while running Zoom and to see where they're dumping out? I'm too afraid of the thick client, like the, the thing you got to install, like, ooh, gives me the willies. Yeah, well, we did have a bit of a laugh about that when the Asset Note guys found that bug, reported it to them, they didn't fix it, then someone else found it and then, you know, wrote about it all over the internet and it was, yeah, oh no, was, they actually found like a, a twist on it, like to turn it into more complete RCE or something. But yeah, right, that was like cross-site request that. forgery to a local web server yes, they were running. It was like, oh, yeah. not, not. A lot of their engineering is in China, so a good thing that China's back up. Does anybody wow. here know who the Zoom CISO is? Is that is that a position that exists? I don't think I don't it sounds like it sounds like you're angling for the uh... No. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Not angling for the job? No, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, do we have anything else to go over here? I mean, this feels like a pretty good place to leave it. Any any parting thoughts? Dimitri, parting thoughts. Uh, you know, some weeks now into this crisis. Uh, well, we're not out of it yet, and unfortunately, it's going to go for a while. No, no yeah. go um, out by, by Easter for sure. Alex? 
I just tweeted a, a parting thought, which is we already have governments now thinking about how are you going to label people as being immune, either because they've gotten a vaccine that doesn't exist yet, or more likely they've survived the virus. And most of the research seems to indicate that if, you, if you've survived it, that you're immune. And some governments are talking about reopening society for those people. So Germany seems to be the furthest along. Uh, and so something I tweeted about is this is something that, you know, there's a lot of techies who are kind of speaking out of turn uh, and playing junior virologist. Um, what I'd rather us do is start to think through, like, what are the kind of acceptance criteria and goals of a system that allows you to prove that you've been infected without giving up a, that I'm sorry, that you're immune from infection uh, without giving up a bunch of personal information, right? Like the most naive solutions that you could implement here are either trivially counterfeitable or will massively violate your privacy or most likely both. Um, and so that's something we can start doing well, now expect, is thinking about what, what those rules should be. You would expect most people to comply, right? I mean, you're going to have a few dickheads who won't, but let them I don't know. Did sick. you see our pictures from spring break in Florida? Like, it's just, there's a, like, if, if we end up I in a situation did, where did, you Alex, can't go to a bar unless you have a wristband, then those wristbands will be going for two bucks as, as, you know, just like with fake IDs on college campuses. But imagine that times a hundred, like there'll be a huge economy for people who think they're, they're young and immune and that they I, I don't know. I mean, I think, of course, of course, but I think also you can, um, you know, uh, I, I, I doubt that would be that widespread. Like to be to be honest, I mean, I just think if you introduce ridiculous, catastrophic fines uh, for people doing that, but yeah, how do you Maybe. enforce that? And that's the question that you're asking: is how do you actually do that in a privacy-preserving way? Yeah. I don't even know that we need to do that in a privacy-preserving way. Actually, I'm okay with a with an immunity database. That's fine by me. But you know, we're a little bit different down here uh, in the southern hemisphere. Uh, yeah. Adam, um, parting thoughts. Uh, the tweet that I saw floating around this morning, which was uh, a question, uh, who drove your digital transformation? Was it your CEO? Was it your CTO? Yeah. Was it COVID-19? Uh, and that's, yes. you know, that's what's happening right here is we are changing so many things about what technology is for and how we use it and how people, you know, integrate it into their lives. And the fallout from that, you know, good and bad, uh, is just going to be really, really interesting. And certainly from a security perspective, there's just a whole bunch of stuff uh, that we don't understand what it means yet. You know, the, the tail of this technically you know is going to be really long uh, and Man, I'm, I, I just, see where I'm really glad I'm really glad you said that because that that is I I saw that tweet I pasted it into our slack earlier because it is it is absolutely the case that you know COVID-19 which is of course a bloody disaster right let's be honest it is a catastrophe uh, but it has done more to drive digital change than the best technology innovation the best technology leader on the planet it absolutely has uh, we also got a um, uh, we got a comment here from a cookie 3034 thank you cookie that says zoom appears to be talking to aws but you know have you noticed how little we're talking about gcp surely gcp has got oh, to Google. find some sort of advantage in this situation right they're still powering snap as far as i know so there you go they, they get snapped. Uh, look, okay. my team uses Feels GCP. Feels like a little bit of a consolation yeah. prize. But it's actually anyway. a great product. I mean, our, our team almost exclusively uses GCP because Stanford has like a really good deal uh, with Google um, and mm. has a deal that we can do like high high security stuff there. Uh, and it's fantastic, I, especially their data products. Like you dump your data in Bigtable, BigQuery, uh, and you pull it out. I love their CoLab, which is their IPython notebook integration. Um, so that's how we do a lot of our work is we build out these CoLab notebooks that then people can share with one another. Uh, and so it's a fantastic product. I, I don't really understand enough about why it has failed so much in the marketplace. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you to everyone who joined us. Uh, I think we've we've only got about forty one live viewers on this thing, uh, but we this will be our third. I think we're averaging around twelve hundred views. Uh, I did say I was going to put last week's into the main audio feed. I think since we had a bit of a discussion, we decided we're going to dump it into the secondary feed. The old RB two feed is going to be resurrected, brought back from the dead. Clear. Uh, so we'll be doing that from now on, um, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna mix up the uh, appearances and maybe uh, make it a little bit less of a cock forest in here uh, sometime soon. Uh, but gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks See you so guys. Much.